Well, we are going to talk about the scriptures tonight. Um, we're going to talk about the church's um, dogmatic teaching, and then we're going to go through a little more um, Matthew and see where we get. Okay. Um, so did you get a chance to read Dei Verbum? Good. Um, I, I want to say a word about um, a couple of things that are just kind of cool, which you might already know. But uh, Dei Verbum means in Latin the word of God. The documents of the church take their name from the first four or five words, or through two or three words, depending, um, from of the document itself. So, the, so you, it's kind of cool when you look, uh, when you when you ever hear the Latin name for a document, you know, it's and then you look in the first sentence, there it is. So this one is hearing the word of God is the first four words, and of course, the, so the document is called De Verbum. Um, now, this was written um, you know, during Vatican II, and it's one of only two of the documents of Vatican II, and Father has the whole, um, this is the documents plus the, pre, the post-conciliar documents and, um, and the um, commentaries on them, um, not completely, but um, just basically the documents of the post-conciliars and the introductions, right? And um, so it's quite a lot, but to say in all of that, there were only two that were dogmatic. And by that we mean that they were seriously laying out so that there would be no doubt among the people of God what the church teaches in regards to the sacred scriptures. Um, this is part of being a Catholic is what's in Dei Verbum, you know, in terms of uh, what you should believe, what you, know, what you can believe. I, I was wondering, maybe we could start this by kind of saying, is, did anything stick out for you um, in reading it, did you find it plot? Would you plotting through? I actually think this is one of the most readable of the documents. But I'd, I'd be interested to hear for you how it went. One of the things I is uh, they always throw around. Hold on, let me uh, word this the correct way. But it has to do if is it an act of faith that it's the word of God? Because mm -hmm. I've always I was raised referencing this Timothy verse, which. Mm -hmm. When I read it, it was all scriptures God breathed. Mm -hmm. Here it's interpreted as divinely inspired. Mm -hmm. It's on page four and at the bottom, um, the, the very left. Um, chapter what? Very bottom of the, oh, oh, sorry. Chapter, chapter what? Two. Number what? Chapter three. Okay. Um, paragraph 11. Or so paragraph 11, but the paragraph after paragraph yeah. 11. Okay. All right, sure. Since therefore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, therefore, mm -hmm. since everything asserted by the inspired author, scripture must be held. Um, mm hmm. Yeah, so that's one of the things I was I had. It's like, is it even an act of faith that it's the that it's the word of God? Because you can't really prove it mm -hmm. that it's mm -hmm. the word of God. Huh. And so, mm -hmm. and I always found it ironic when when I was Protestant, they're like, no, Second Timothy, oh, it's, it's God breathed. I'm like, well, you can't define the mm -hmm. thing, the word, with the word. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? You can't right. define that the book is the word of God. If the mm -hmm. book says it's the word of God. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's the word of God because of sacred tradition right. and that's what's so cool about this and that it, you know not to narc on our Protestant brethren but it's it's one of the things that doesn't make sense um, in the whole Protestant thing it seems to me uh, that they make scripture um, kind of on its own but this, we have the scriptures because of sacred tradition which gathered them together and kind of weeded through. And, and I've heard people say, well, no, they just picked all the ones that were of the period. No, the Gospel of Peter predates the Gospel of 
of Matthew. I mean, it, it, it could be as early as 40 A.D. But for some reason, they read the Gospel of Peter, and they were like, mm, yeah, this isn't one. You know, So uh, there's actually a great... Um, I was looking today at the, re- the writings of the first two centuries of Christendom, and there's about 40 things that might have ended up in the scriptures um, beyond the scriptures themselves in other words and you know everything from the Didache to the Gospel of Mary the Gospel of Peter the Gospel of Thomas you know the you know the writings of the sh- was the writings of the Shepherd of Hermas I guess you know I mean there's there's tons of stuff and many much of it is devout and much of it is good but what was it that decided what was really the word of God it was the bishops getting together and praying and then enlightened by the spirit saying this is it and it was because of the tradition that had been handed down that they finally they said you know what we're we need to codify this we need to canonize it and that's was it 383 that that finally happened yeah that's right yeah so um but uh so then to kind of say sola scriptura doesn't make any sense because it's not like the scriptures just the bible just like popped out of the ground together you know it it was the church that was keeping all of these holy things that were being written. Um, and then the church uh, said that there is a primacy even among the holy things that we have. Say some of them are actually were inspired of God. Um, and they are part of his, and I love this um, definition, that they, they teach solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. So um, everything in the scriptures has something, some important bearing on our salvation. And um, and it's funny because if you read the Didache, it's like, well, this could be Proverbs. But for some reason, Proverbs has stuff more pertinent to our salvation than the Didache that God wanted. Now, it's not that the Didache is, isn't a, could be a reflection on that. Yeah. But anyway, it's kind of cool. So um, I think, you know, still, well, what made some things sacred scripture and others not? Well, was that some things were inspired by God um, to give us something that we couldn't know unless it was written um, in, in his word. And then it was the church that decided which one of those were enlightened by the Spirit. Um, and so Dave Verbum is, is, is really planting its flag in that. You know, that there are these books that um, we needed. And we needed them because there were things about God that we could not know unless God had told them to us. Um, that's in, um, in number six, and this is in uh, chapter one on Revelation. He says, uh, this is the second sentence, that is to say, he chose to share with them, that's us, right, those divine treasures which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. Um, and then just to continue, um, as the bishops have has affirmed, the sacred synod, God, the beginning and end of all things, can be known with certainty from created reality. That's Romans. St. Paul says everything that can be known about God can be seen in creation. Um, But teaches that it is through his revelation that those religious truths which are by their nature, and I think this is a misprint, should it be inaccessible? Mine says accessible. Does yours say inaccessible? I think I have the same translation as oh. you. <coughs> Does yours say inaccessible or accessible? Where, there? You're at the end of what? Um, uh, it says, uh, that, uh, but teaches that it's through his revelation that those religious truths which are by their nature accessible, to, accessible human to human reason 
are not beyond the grasp of Okay, well that's oh, the okay. same then. So, so I must, I, I'd be interested to hear what that means then, because it doesn't. But um, m maybe they're not beyond the grasp once they're they're told told to us, mm -hmm. um, yeah. even in the persistent state of the human race. But teaches that it is through his revelation. So. Oh, okay. But then yeah. it, it follows by saying, mm -hmm. okay, it's knowable the human reason, but revelation makes it something that can be received with ease, with certitude, with okay. and with no trace of error. Okay. All right. Good. So. Um, so in other words, the scriptures, you know, kind of clarify and define and fill in the stuff that you could learn from a tree. You know, kind of by gazing on a tree or a mountain or a sunset, deduce all these things about God, but it would take you a long time and you probably might get the wrong conclusion from the sunset or the tree. Like, like for example, God is orange. Yes, that is what I learned from, about God from the sunset. And then the scriptures come along and they say, you know, God is orange and red and yellow and blue and, you know, the spectrum comes from him and then many more colors that we can't even see. So, yeah, orange is part of God, but there's much more too. So um, so that's why we, um, and then we, th we see how that fits in with the tree. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, now, now the tree makes sense to me. Do you, do you see that? Yeah. So that's kind of the that is kind of the heart of number number chapter one about revelation and and I guess th it seems to me that the main point of it is it's gratuitous. God didn't have to say anything about himself to us. He chose to. He chose to be self-revealing and to um, make known to us as much as we could take in about him right now. And um, so, any other sense of chapter one? Anybody else have any particular cool thing that they wanted to mention there? What that word doesn't, it always strikes me again that word it just isn't, you know, words. Right. Deeds, the voice of God. Right. And just to go even back to the preface, the opening word mm -hmm. of the preface is hearing the word of God. Mm. And it's not reading the word of God, it's mm -hmm. hearing. Mm. It gives primacy to proclamation because we receive, it's mediated by a person ultimately, not by a mm -hmm. text. Mm -hmm. Cool. Mm -hmm. And then with Christ, it's of course meeting the word, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, seeing the word and meeting the word, yeah. Um, and that's beautiful in, in chapter 4, and, um, you know, uh, um, excuse me, number 4 of chapter 1. Uh, you know, that speaking, God revealed himself in many and varied ways through the prophets, this is from Hebrews, and then sends his son so that we can stop having a mediated revelation where we're getting, you know, all of this, you know, somebody, God is talking to somebody and they're turning around and they're speaking to us and they're speaking to us through poetry and they're speaking to us through songs and they're speaking to us through stories and they're speaking to us through myths and they're speaking to, and we're trying to figure out God in all that and then God says, okay, enough. And he comes plop in front of us, and as it says, a man to men. Um, so the final revelation of God is in is this, this person, and um, so there's nothing else. You know, when when Philip says, "Just show us the Father, it'll be enough," and Jesus is like, "Philip, and you see me, you see the Father." So there's nothing else to be known about God that we need for salvation. Um, it, it's all in Christ. So, um, that whole thing on Revelation is beautiful. Now the handing on of Revelation is number chapter 2. And so, 
So basically, revelation is completed in the gospel, which is Christ. And um, but then Christ ascends into heaven, um, and the gospel now is in the minds and the hearts of the church, his people. And so the Holy Spirit says, "We need uh, you to write it down, because this is a longer-term project than just your lives." And so you have, you have this cool kind of double thing happening now, which is a living tradition plus a static thing. The, and that the scriptures, and I, I want, I'm careful here saying this, that the, the scriptures aren't static because they're part, we grow in the way we understand them. But it's kind of cool. It's like the tradition is alive and growing. The scriptures are static. They stay. And that is the story of the church, that, um, that we keep handing on the same thing to every new age, and then every age broods over it and makes a gift to the next age of some deepening of this thing, some deepened way to understand it. And my favorite one of these is that, you know, in 19, I think, 83 or 86, I think maybe 86, actually, it was after I was in the convent, uh, John Paul II, you know, the Vicar of Christ, writes a document on the dignity of women. It only took 1,986 <laughs> years. <laughs> but, you know, and now that's not to say that the church didn't hold women in dignity and reverence and everything like that, but it's kind of remarkable that the first document of, on women comes 1,986 years into the reflection on the scriptures. And um, and so does that mean that you know just what does it mean? It means that there was a deepening that the church wasn't ready for before for whatever reason, but it took um, you know you know, almost two thousand years, and then the church was ready to say women and men are spiritually um, equal, but and have but have you know they have their own dignity, and this is the dignity of woman. Um, and uh, I love that. Uh, and, and now does that mean that if they had read that to St. Peter he would have said no that's not true I think it would have been too much for him they, they weren't ready for that and Jesus says that in the scriptures you know I have other things to say but you're not ready to hear them now what does that mean it means that you will be you know you the family will be um, which is so cool the same scriptures so, so we're, we're entrusted with this funny thing in the church one of them is to preserve the sacred scriptures to be handed on exactly the same to the next generation. Every generation is entrusted with that duty. We have to preserve it because it's not for, it's for us, but it's for the future. And then in every apostolic relationship, in evangelization, you are entrusted to hand on the same thing, the scriptures, to whoever you evangelize. And yet, we're also entrusted to be part of the living thing that that broods over it and then adds a nuance, a deepening, or say a depth of understanding that was missing um, before us. So, um, you know, Jesus says, blessed are they who can take out of their storehouse both the old and the new. And that's, to me, the scriptures and sacred tradition. Um... Somebody else want to, anybody want to say anything else about 
handing on there, or about the whole sacred tradition thing. Uh, you know, actually, let me read a couple lines here that I personally pull out, and then and then certainly everybody jump in. Um, now the question is, and this is in number eight, the last sentence, or the last sentence of the first paragraph of number eight. What is it exactly that the apostles decided was part of sacred tradition? Because we say, okay, scriptures were the the, the actual stuff of the word. The tradition was the way we do stuff as Christians. But then it's like, well, we do a lot of stuff. Which things are sacred tradition? Which of the stuff that we do when we get together is sacred? You know, like God forbid, for example, you know, some of the stuff I saw at Mass Light last night in terms of, you know, uh, it's part of the tradition of the church that we let mediocre people scream through the microphones. That's the way we do it. Now, you could kind of look at the church in, in, in the world today and say, yeah, that's, that's part of being a Catholic. Terrible music on that Sunday, you know. No, that's the way we do things that I think could be let go, uh, frankly. But um, this is what um, they say here. Now, so what is it that's sacred tradition? Um, what was handed on by the apostles includes everything which contributes toward the holiness of life and increase in faith of the peoples of God. And so the church in her teaching, life, and worship perpetuates and hands on to all generations all that she herself is, all that she believes. Where are you on that? Um, that's number 8, chapter 2. Okay. And that's the, the end of, the, of paragraph 8. So um, sacred tradition... Of, yeah, number eight. of number 8, yeah. Sacred tradition is everything in her teaching, life, and worship that leads to holiness of life and increase of faith in the people of God. That's the stuff of sacred tradition. And um, and then there's a lot of other stuff that we do that's kind of trapped in the moment. Uh, for example, um, a, a famous one is the we don't eat fish on Friday. Now, we don't eat fish on Friday because... I mean, excuse me, we don't eat meat on Friday. Sorry, we eat fish on Friday. We don't eat meat on Friday. Now, this was... It used to be that... It was under pain of sin pretty much all the time. Catholics didn't eat meat on Friday. But then then it became that fish became more expensive than meat in many places. And so they kind of got back to, well, the tradition should be that the people of God should make a sacrifice every week. And it's appropriate to do it on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, which is Friday. But the spirit of the tradition, the real thing we're handing on is the notion that it is spiritually efficacious for the people of God to make a weekly sacrifice. Now, whether that means not eating meat on Friday, which might not be any big deal for you, but maybe it's you bite your tongue that day, or you get up earlier and go to Mass, or you, you know, whatever. Uh, but the tradition is, the sacred tradition is this insight that we should have the practice of at least one weekly mortification. The thing that changes is what that is. And so basically the church kind of backed off of telling us what it's about exactly to do. Um, so, um, okay, um, any other comments about sacred tradition? So much to say about it. Can I just, I'll usually have um, I'll, I'll give you a great formula from Tertullian. And Tertullian said, 
when you're trying to figure out what's really part of the sacred tradition, it's a good bet that everything, anything old is closer to being true <laughs> than anything new. So if, if you all of a sudden hear people saying, you know, um, to be Catholic you have to, I don't know, I have no I mean, you, you know, it's hard to come up with stuff um, that, you know, but something, you know, and it's like that chances are if it's something bizarre that you've never heard before, um, chances are it's probably not part of our tradition. But when you find its roots, it's like if its roots were in 1967, be careful. <laughs> but if its roots were in, you know, in, in the ages, you're, you have a better, um, and I love that Tertullian said that in like the third century. Yeah, because that meant that already by the third century, <laughs> you know, he's like, if it's old, it's good. In the third century, you know, so uh, that meant there was already all kinds of stuff going in, or people saying, "This is what you have to do to be saved." You know. So, um, any any comments about sacred tradition? Sorry, yeah, when the phone rang, you were starting to say something about um, you were using the fish example. Oh right. And I've I've only been taught about this a little bit about mm -hmm. revelation of truth mm -hmm. and and how um, it says the church is always advancing towards the plenitude of divine truth mm. until eventually the words of God are fulfilled in her. How do we counter when people say that the church changes its teaching? Right. Because like mm -hmm. the no fish on fr no meat on Friday sure. example. Right. That that's. Yeah, not dogmatic. It's, it's but really here in number eight, and, like and actually, it's a simple way to explain that this that that's not what we're doing. We're not sure. changing truth. It's look at number five truth. under eight. There is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. See, here's the thing: change is when something becomes something else. Progress is when something becomes more itself. Say it again. Change is when something becomes something else. Progress is when something becomes more itself. So when we talk about, say, quote, you have to be careful of the terminology. When people are like, well, the church's teaching has changed. You want to say, no, the church's teaching has progressed because her understanding has deepened but she hasn't changed her teaching in the sense of any of the big stuff, the main things that we believe. Mm -hmm. and, that's and a really good, succinct way to say yeah. it right yeah. there. I mean, mm -hmm. just that's, you know when you need like, something pissy to say to somebody right. who's in your face about, well, mm -hmm. you used to not be able to, you used to be sitting at the age, you know, right. right. yeah. And, and it's like any more than you. Like, you know, you kind of look at them and say, well, the church, the mystical body of Christ, as a person, a person can develop and can reach its fruition, but it doesn't become another person. It doesn't have that ability. You cannot change yourself into another person. You can only stop your growth or you can advance. The church is a living person. It's the, it is the mystical body of Christ. So um, in that sense, you know, so this whole thing about the church's teaching has changed. It's like, no, it, it goes back to that. We weren't ready to hear it yet because of our own sin, our own lung, our own stubbornness, our own issues, our own, you know, whatever. Um, we had to brood over some things. And, and then there's this 
we had to get this before we could get that. You know, so it's kind of like, okay, um, you know, the philosophy of the church kind of brooding, you know, over the scriptures and the theology and then putting things together, you know, and then, so St. Thomas comes along in the 13th century and really articulates a very coherent philosophy, which is, you know, brooding on the scriptures and using reason to kind of really get to um, what things mean. Well, that took 1,300 years, and then it took us 600 years to try and understand what he, you know, that, and we're still puzzling it through. And I'm not saying Thomas is the limit, but he certainly, you know, um, they, you know, we don't call him the angelic doctor for nothing. You know, I remember one of my professors in theology saying once, "There was nothing of magnitude of which Thomas did not comment." <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it's like, what can I say? You know, but um, but anyway, I think um, I think the idea there is, did did you know, did the Summa Theologica change the Church's teaching? No, it enlightened the Church's understanding. And um, so, you know, that's the answer to that. Now, one of the reasons our people are confused is because they are not educated enough in philosophy to see, to be able to see the relationships between things and, and the hierarchy between things. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things you study when you study Aristotle is the categories where he separates everything and he says these things are related to these things and these things are related to these things and the idea of it is is that if you get that then you see how some things flow from other things right and how they're related so um, it's not a change it's that's why you should be able to distinguish for example seeing um, the you know that, that for example eating fish or meat on Friday See, the principle is the making of a sacrifice. The, the lesser thing is, is how you make that sacrifice. But God is not really bound up in whether we eat fish or meat. You know, it's not about that. It's, it's about our, the efficaciousness of our denying ourselves, you know, etc. So I think one of the reasons our people can't see it is, is they, they, haven't, um, they don't have philosophy anymore. So they don't, not that they ever did, but there was a, for a brief glimpse there was a you know a couple hundred years of it and um, I think uh, our people just don't they can't distinguish um, what's more important than something else and that's why you know the laity now um, it's a tough time uh, it's going to get tougher you've got to be able to distinguish you know Teresa of Avila said um, at the end of the, the 14th century this is, these are not the days for pinning your soul on anyone's shoulder. Pin your soul on Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think by that she meant that it was a very confused time and a lot of people were writing to her saying, just tell me what to think and I'll do that because I trust you. And she's basically saying, hey, you know, I'm smart right now and I'm okay with God, but you know, tomorrow I might follow the wrong guru. Mm-hmm. This is the point of last week's gospel, don't you think? Um, Oh, call no one on earth your father. Right. Or no one on earth your master or teacher. Right, exactly. You've got to really pin your life to God Mm -hmm. and follow God and be clear on your own. Right. And other people serve a purpose, and you Mm -hmm. have to listen to them, and there may be a value there, but you really have to do To discern. Yeah. 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 John of the Cross says the same thing. He's like, if you attach yourself to a holy person, what if they fall? You know, are you going to be scandalized by that and go astray? 
because of that. Right. So I think this thing of, of um, discernment um, and, and this idea of growth and understanding, you know, the ability to, dis- to discern how, um, you know, what's the point and what's the heart and, and get back to um, what Christ said and then kind of keep confronting things with that. You know, their sacred tradition is only going to be a development, a deepening of the same stuff. We're never going to get to the point of suddenly, you know what? Free will is a bad thing. It's a new <laughs> theologian, and it's, you know, we're, we've, we've all got together and we've decided that free will is evil, and we never had it anyway. Only the angels have it. You know, stuff like that. If it's no sense of progression, that's a like. <laughs> You know, um, and and so that's what you have to listen for. But you can only discern it if you've, you know, if you if you're paying attention and you're rooted. These are these are very going to be very cool times. Uh, I think well, and when we you were talking, I had one of the little glimmers that I get once yeah. about every ten years um, <laughs> of starting to maybe really really understand something about the horror then of the lack of understanding of, of truth. Because none of it, and if you don't know that there's, or if you just think anyone can make their own truth, mm-hmm. then none of this makes sense, mm-hmm. and it does all sound goofy, right? Because mm-hmm. sorry, I don't. And it sounds, it sounds fascist and arrogant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, right. And hence the hatred that gets directed against the church. I mean, ultimately, the hatred comes down to how dare you say that you can know, you know, something to be true, you know, that, um, you know, as we're, as we're reading here, that something is actually true at all times, for all ages, for all people. How dare you? I mean, that's why they hate this, that the idea of, of us contending that this is eternal truth is so fascist to the, to the relativist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this thing was written by primitive primitive man, you know, he used to, the other half of them were worshipping goats. They thought that if they stepped the wrong way, it wouldn't rain. Come on. You know, and um, it's a real arrogance of modernity, frankly. Um, I remember my mom, again, I'm always quoting my mom, but she's just got these great things, and um, she always says, don't forget, girls, every age is modern. And by that she meant every age thinks it's the modern age. Right. Smarter than the one that came mm-hmm. before. Yeah. And we're just one of them. Mm-hmm. And and in the panoply of time, we may not be the most enlightened. Right. Um, so, um, you know, th- th- that's the ar- ultimate arrogance of today is that, you know, we're so smart and they, those people back then were, we're stupid. Well, that's, yeah, Dietrich von Hildebrand called it a theological puberty crisis. It <laughs> happens in every age. Like, you're always smarter than your parents. <laughs> you But um, I love instead the, um, this is the, in paragraph 8, again, chapter 2, the last sentence of that second paragraph says, for, because this I think is so beautiful, for as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward toward the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment. That means every age in this living tradition, you know, adds something to the tradition for the next age to brood over. And the question is, and what will we have added in our time? Well, that's up to you, isn't it? I think one thing in this generation, say the last second half of the 20th century, 
was the universal call to holiness. Um, I think Vatican II really highlighted that, the idea that every one of us is called to great sanctity and great holiness, and that we're going to play that out not in convents and rectories and churches. We're going to play it out in our offices, in our families, in our um, whatever you're doing, you know, in Hollywood, that that's going to be the scene of your miracles, um, of your revelation, you know, to the people around you. Um, that, I, I think, is um, one of the insights that we're adding to the, you know, which was radical. It, you know, we're in the middle of it, so it doesn't seem radical, but it, it is radical. Yeah. Should the what should the model be for passing on this tradition? I, I, mm-hmm. I like the laity are just so uninformed. CCD is so ridiculous, and it, it almost seems it's as if it's as if we're Protestant and just you know Protestants. It's tough to be Protestant because you just hand the Bible and you don't have you know all this half the tradition basically. Um, like. Is it only for people, it seems that it's like only for people who enter seminary and get really formed who get to have the tradition of the revelation, specifically with the word? Well, you know I, mean, I mean, the sacred tradition, strictly speaking, is ver- validated by the apostles, the bishops. Uh-huh. So, um, and yet, sacred tradition in a little s, which is your life, as a, as a disciple in 2005 and, and what, how you shed light on you know, what the mystical body of Christ looks like and means in your life. So you know, I think all of us who are in this like, little nation community of Christians in Hollywood, this new thing that's cool, you know, we are revealing a facet in, of the church um, and, uh, that is a new understanding. Yeah. And um, how we do that um, is going to be part of the revelation of Christ into the people of our time, yeah. because we are the mystical body. And um, so, in that sense, there you go. But I think on another level, honestly, I think we're headed back to the days of the early church, where, you know, hey, guys, there were 12 priests in all of the world. Hmm. So how did the faith get transmitted? Over the dinner table, you know, in at you know by the you, you have Lydia, the dealer in purple goods, holding religious seminars by the the river in Thebes or wherever she was in. You know, I mean, that was the way the gospel was spread was the lay people one to one talking, um, and especially the slaves. You know that the the it was the one of the reasons that you know it was a scandal in Rome was that it was the religion of the slaves. They, t- they got it first. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe that's what's going to be required from us. But I think um, we have seen the age of, you know, five, par- five priests in every parish. And I'm not sure that it was good for us. It was an anomaly in history. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really, the, there were more priests and religious per Catholic from 1925 until 1965 than any time in history. In the history of the church, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, in mm-hmm. some ways, we're just getting back to normal. Mm-hmm. But what, what's going to be interesting is, is there, were, there were clear ways of how, how we stayed in communion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think is going to get, is where mm-hmm. some of the conflict. 
Mm -hmm. We were just talking about a mm -hmm. charismatic group that it, it's very common for charismatic groups to go way right. to to lead more mm -hmm. like Mel Gibson's group. Right. Right. Start with doing really valid stuff, mm -hmm. but then. Mm -hmm. Gnosticism once again. Yep. Everybody comes up with their own, you know, and that is the danger of not having an educated lady. And I think that that's the problem. If if we had no priest but an educated lady, it would be okay. Right. But what we have is we're losing the priests and the nuns who were educated in their faith, and we have a, a laity who are completely ignorant. So there's a great part of we're going to read Brideshead Revisited, and you know. Um, there's a character named Re uh, Rex who's studying, and, and you know, um, Cecilia tells him about the sacred <laughs> monkeys and having to sleep with your toes pointed towards the east. And he's like, "Really? Okay, you know, <laughs> the sacred monkeys of the Vatican, you know." And uh, she does it to kind of point out how ridiculous um, he is in his religious ignorance, you know. And um, and yet, you know, I, I think honestly, I could probably. I'm an articulate person. I could probably stand up in a, with a group of some Catholics and give them some stuff like that, and I'm sure a good third of them would go, really? Wow. Yeah, I can see that. And you're just like... <laughs> like you know. Mother Angelica would do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. She would say things sort of as a joke off the cuff, mm -hmm. and then people would come to church the next week and say, oh, wow, you know, she said this. And mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I used to see stuff in, in New Orleans yeah. that would just freak me out. I couldn't believe... Uh, the people, you know, and they they had all the goodwill in the world, so God would bless them. But man, the days of being that way are are are, you know, I don't think we have that luxury. Yet. Well, yeah, I think we're more culpable too, because we have the opportunity to to know yeah. the truth with the means of communication. I mean, yeah, everybody has the possibility of of hearing yeah. what Pope Benedict yeah. said on Wednesday by the weekend, yeah. you know. And and but you know, I got to say another cool thing about it that makes us not be afraid. There's nothing that makes a light purer and, and than a than a dark room, mm -hmm. you know, and gives a light more power. You know, if you take a light in in the middle of five, you know, at a noon, and walk down the street, it doesn't show at all. But it's it's because of the darkness that we have the opportunity to really be a light. And so those of us who know our faith, who can really be this handing on of the old and then the new um, are going to be in demand and are going to be, you know, people are going to be drinking your words like water in the desert because um, in the days to come I think there's going to be so much confusion. Um, so, you know, we can pray that, that maybe not, but at the same time um, the hour of crisis is the hour of heroes and saints and this is the hour of our time. So, Okay. Thank the baby boomers. What are we doing here now? Oh, here. It's 8.30? Okay, we haven't even gotten to Matthew yet. Um, all right, I want to read one last part here of um, on, on sacred tradition. And um, and this is probably another mo very important paragraph. This is in section 10, chapter 2. And just kind of we're just reiterating what I said. But the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusi exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, uh, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it. 
So there's the cool kind of thing. Uh, the Protestants throw the rap at us that we've put ourselves above the word with our sacred tradition. It's like, no, the sacred tradition serves the word by brooding on it in every age and, and revealing a new facet of it that is consistent with it, not counter to it. But think of that, that, that the, the, the bishops in communion with the Pope have the authority, or the last word on things, on what the scriptures mean um, in terms of official teaching. Um, and they do it in service of it, not to dominate the scriptures. You know, this is another area, though, like truth. Mm. You know, when people don't accept that there's this authority, mm. this greater authority that has the right, mm-hmm. the divine right, to teach us, mm. none of it. Well, right, and what fir- and what immediately starts happening is that the the, the book becomes um, completely changed, uh, and that's why we need both, um, because. As soon as we eliminate the magisterium, you know, the bishops and the pope united serving the word, then it becomes, what does it mean to me in my little church in Galveston? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, whatever. Whatever I need it to mean to me. And um, and that, that becomes the problem. And you can start out with all the goodwill in the world, and then you can be like Luther and fall in love with a nun. And... You know, and decide celibacy. That vow I took. God doesn't care about vows. You know, I'm gonna do my. I'm gonna. God doesn't care. I just decided. Vows are relevant. Yeah. I actually, I um, in my religious studies class on Thursday, I had to listen to this excruciating um, uh, oral presentation from one of my fellow students on Tyndale. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, I mean, she'd gotten all of her information off of, off of the internet, like off of one website, basically, mm-hmm. like Tyndale.com or whatever. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. ever looked it up. But it was just like, mm-hmm. I mean, completely the entire thing was like bashing the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. like after the teacher goes up to her and she's like, great presentation. I'm like sitting there like, <laughs> what, what school is this? <laughs> like, what school is that? Um, it's uh, Santa Monica College, so oh, it's, it's Bible wow. literature. But like sure. the thing, the thing that I loved that, she, that there was a couple of things like mm-hmm. you know that were just I mean so blatantly untrue mm-hmm. that she was like saying they were true. Mm-hmm. One of them was the Tyndale translation was so good that they modeled the King James version after it. I'm like, I thought the King James version wasn't a great translation. Like, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like, even every church has said that, yeah. and then. Um, the other no, thing that true. tripped me out was um, she goes she had a list of phrases that Tyndale had coined and mm-hmm. one of them was ye of little faith and I was like wait I thought Jesus Jesus actually I'm like I'm no. sorry I don't know the Bible like back and forth but I do know that that wasn't something that Tyndale, <laughs> Tyndale actually coined yeah <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah it was yeah. in mm-hmm. that and those just those two things mm-hmm. were like the only things that I remember that I was just like okay mm-hmm. this is just a bunch of crap I can't believe it you know which is again the reason why we, we we have to know our faith because yeah. otherwise you're, you're so susceptible to that. You know that's a the second one is huge there. You know especially mm-hmm. to say you know that uh, words of Christ were invented by Tyndale. Well, no. She gave me, she gave me a worksheet actually. I should have brought it in so yeah. I could look at it. It was really interesting. like all the stuff on there was so much of it was untrue. And I I don't even know very much about the church. Mm-hmm. And I just just 
reading it, I'm like, this isn't true. Can't be true. Yeah. Like, blatantly And that's part of the problem of the internet age. Mm. Yeah. Is that you, yeah. It, I think it, in some ways it makes it easier. It's easier to have access, but it's harder yeah. to find truth. It's true. Because right. people posture as truths mm-hmm. when they yeah. need so much. Oh, sure. Sharing. Yeah. 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 That's that's true. True. No, it's so true because even just tonight, I, I was you know preparing for class, I, so I started around, I was looking for a commentary on Dave Verbum, and and so I started reading one, and then the next thing I read was, I think I realized, was like, oh, they don't like Dave Verbum. <laughs> it was some, <laughs> some guy attacking the, the arrogance of the church in issuing <laughs> this document and kind of twisting and everything, And but there you go, you know, it was like commentary on Dave Verbum, you know, and so I just started reading, and then I was like, oh my gosh, you know, so there's the problem. There's so much out there, you know, but like my search for Dave Erba yielded like, you know, 7,000 hits or something. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, how do you start trying to weed through it? You have to, you have to inform yourself. So yeah. when I hear like the, that Tyndale thing and even reading this, it strikes me how much we must take for granted the fact that we have, um, like to think that the church, that, that the Bible, that scripture is under threat. And it seems like, I mean, it's probably never, and this is actually a history question, but it seems like now it's more under threat than than it was pre-Luther, like with mm-hmm. all the different translations yeah. and all. And it's, it's mm-hmm. really interesting to see it more small, like the apostles, you know, mm-hmm. we have to keep this right, and then Tyndale comes along, and that's what was your explanation, that it's mm-hmm. like, you can't just make crappy, you know. Mm-hmm. But we take it for granted because the Bible's just kind of always been there and always available. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Scott Hahn said an interesting thing. He said, you know, if somebody wrote you a letter, who would be the best person to tell you what that letter meant? Probably the person who wrote it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not arrogant for the church to tell us what it meant because it was ultimately the church that gathered it and collected it and sure. passed it on. Yeah. And it still does gather minds from around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the big M magisterium is somewhat limited, mm-hmm. but they include all sorts of other scholars in that mm-hmm. discussion. Mm-hmm. So it really does mm-hmm. get a pretty broad spectrum of humanity mm-hmm. in on the discussions before they decide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, Can you I give an example of that, Father? Like, like how they just had a huge kind of consultation on homosexuality the bishops. The bishops. Oh, there's a synod in Rome to send it. Uh, but this was in preparation for the synod. Oh, this right. was two years ago. Okay. They got psychologists, they got sociologists, they got mm-hmm. biologists, and they met and they had quite extensive and quite technical kind of study on the issue of homosexuality, what it meant, where it came from, what are its origins, what does it mean. Mm-hmm. And we don't, I mean, they didn't write a single document about what that means, but. I think the, the fruit of the, that study will come out in, in a lot of ways and things that they've got there looking at now. I mean, usually the church defines things when they become controversial, mm-hmm. and the church is patient. So, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, uh, she defines um, the Immaculate Conception um, after it had been batted around for something like 300 years. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Thomas had put out something and he died when he was working on it, you know, on the whole issue of it, and um, had argued both sides, and then the rumor is he was going to come down on the wrong side and then he died, <laughs> you know. I mean, even the angelic doctor, you know, was uh, was going to take the opinion, opinion theologically. But then, you know, 300 years later, the church defines it and says, you know what, we've been listening to the theologians and now we pray over all of their, their, their insights and this is the living tradition. And then we're going to say, and this is, you know, we're resolving this confusion by, by defining this matter. And that's the sacred tradition living. 
Um, but she only defines stuff when it's controversial, because um, you know that means the people of God need help, mm-hmm. and it also means the people of God are working something that you know is God trying to speak to them, and it bothers us, and we're all the church, and then whatever. And so, we, but but then the point is when the church, when the magisterium settles it, we should be at peace, and unfortunately. Um, we haven't seen that trend, in, you know, lately. Um, eh, not that we ever have. I always hate making this, you know. I mean, we're still not at the point of, you know, St. Charles Borromeo after the Council of Trent went back to his see and his seminarians fired on him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from his seminary. You know, it's like we're still not there yet. You know, they had actually fired on their archbishop because they hated. They disagreed with what some of the stuff. Yeah, that at least seminarians still do that. Right? Yeah. At least a couple of months from that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thank God they didn't have them one day. Okay, um, we got to move on here because we've got um, more to do. Chapter 3, I'm going to point to a couple of lines that I think are key here. Um, and one, and this would be in chapter 11, excuse me, in, um, in paragraph 11, the second paragraph. Um, and this is one of those statements. I told you this is a dogmatic document. That means that the content of it must be believed. It's the official church teaching. And here's one of those statements that is um, absolutely a dogmatic formula. What does the church teach? This is under therefore. You know, therefore, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, it follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted put into sacred writing for the sake of salvation. So there you have it. Solidly, faithfully, and without error what God wanted to be put into the scriptures. So then you have to deal with, well, there's stuff in it that God, my God, could not want because it's dreadful. My God is not the kind of God who would order Joshua to slaughter the Canaanites. I, I, I take issue with that. That's not my God. It's so convicting because it's mm-hmm. so easy to gloss over Timothy verses where it's talking about women and it's like, oh, that's just God working with Paul who's in a specific time and mm-hmm. place. doesn't really get women yet. Mm-hmm. But you have to... Well, you have to get to the heart of the in meaning and the intention. And that's the tricky thing. And that's what we're coming up to now, this whole section number 12. Um, So the first paragraph there. However, since God speaks in sacred scripture through men in human fashion, um, the interpreter of sacred scripture, that's us, in order to see clearly what God wanted to communicate to us, has to carefully investigate what meaning the sacred writers really intended. So this whole section number 12 is just a really critical section of this document. It's about getting to the real eternal meaning of some of the things that are being written in a particular time. So there are things in the Bible, um, and then then there's also, and then the next thing, um, let me me just read this next part and then we'll talk about it. Um, The first sentence, Um, actually the the last sentence of the second paragraph there under number seven for the correct understanding of what the sacred author wanted to assert due attention must be paid to the customary and characteristic styles of feeling speaking and narrating which prevailed at the time of the sacred writer and then um, 
and, and to the patterns norm, then normally employed. And then um, the next one is, but since Holy Scripture must be read and interpreted in the sacred spirit, no less serious attention must be given to the content and unity of the whole of Scripture if the meaning of the sacred text is to be worked out. That means that you read every line of Scripture with the whole of Scripture in mind and you're trying to get to the heart of what um, what was said. So, for example, um, we talk about St. Paul saying, you know, a woman who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, why was that? Because in their time, you know, women's hair was her glory. The only women who went without head coverings were prostitutes. And they did that to attract men. Now, then we have the gospel, and this whole movement starts up of freedom of the children of God. And so the women, many of them, are carrying around, deciding that they're, they can pray with their heads uncovered just like the men. And St. Paul says, you're scandalizing the hell out of people because they're coming in and saying, you, you're women just like prostitutes. Now, basically, Paul then says, a woman who prays with her head and covers dishonors her head, what's, what's the root of what Paul is going for there? Yeah? Maybe it's kind of like what we were discussing earlier, like don't go to church with no clothes on. Or it's, <coughs> it's not something that they're used to back then. I mean, right, reverend. Man, if a man yeah. sees a woman with her head uncovered, he thinks something, just mm-hmm. like, you know, if you've got pants to hear, it puts their mind Exactly. That, that the heart of the meaning of, of St. Paul in that text is about reverence and appropriate, our appropriate decorum when we come together to worship, that there is an appropriate and then there isn't an appropriate, and, then, and the idea, though, of, of bearing ourselves in a humble way that would um, uh, facilitate our prayer and the prayer of the people around us. Like, that's the heart of it. Exactly. So, because if you take that line with the whole scripture, that's the heart of the meaning. Um, And that's the difference between us and literal interpreters of the scriptures, is that the the Catholic Church is always trying to get at what was the eternal truth here that God is trying to communicate. Is it that when we move into a new neighborhood, we go in and slaughter the, the sinners? It's like, no. What was the heart of the meaning of the slaughtering of the Canaanites when, you know, because that you have to take that into consideration with the next pa- another passage where it says, be kind to the strangers uh, in, the, in, in your town. Uh, because remember, you were once strangers in this land. What is that? You know, how do you deal with both of those? You know, strangers meaning, basically the meaning of stranger was, you know, non-Jewish evil or not evil but you know pagan worshiper of other gods so you know be good to them because you were once a, you were once a stranger yourself and then you know how do you just well you have to read both of those you know together we are not literalists we are uh, searching for the, um, the 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 heart of the meaning um, and then another thing that I wanted to say here is that um, and this is a great. For truth is set forth and expressed differently. This is in 12. In texts which are variously historic, historical, prophetic, poetic, or other forms. 
Well, you know, let me give you an example of one of them. Um, this is one of the Psalms, which is, sorry, you know, the Psalms were songs. So here's one, um, Psalm 93. The Lord is king. He ro- he's robed with majesty. He's girded with might. His throne stands firm from of old, from everlasting, O Lord. The flood has raised up, Lord. The flood has raised up its roar. The flood has raised its pounding waves. More powerful than the roar of many waters. More powerful than the breakers of the sea. Powerful in the heavens is the Lord. Okay. Is God a king sitting on a throne? Somewhere? Is he? Is he wearing a robe of gold? No. What is that? You know, it's it's like that song from the Carpenters. I'm on the top of the world, looking down on creation. Does she expect that people are going to go? No, you're not. That's a lie. <laughs> Stupid Karen Carpenter. You're not. Either you're crazy or lying. <laughs> now, now, we do that with the Bible. It's like, you know, and the stretching. The fact is, it was a, it's a poem. The poem is about God's majesty and power and sovereignty. It's not about what he wears and where he sits. And, and we, we get into mess-ups when we try to rigorously apply a, a kind of reading that's proper in one kind of work to one that's not in another. So when you read a historical text, you know, okay, this, one, this, is, a his, this is a history. And the Bible has histories. It has numbers and it has censuses. Then you read one and it's clearly part of the myth formulas in which they talked about uh, when you read Plutarch. Plutarch's lives. You know, Alcibiades crushed 70 lions with one smote of his thing. Now, we know Alcibiades was a real guy, really strong, but did he kill 70 lions with a sword? No, that was how they wrote about their heroes. Um, it's a kind of hagiography. That's what it's called. The idea was he was really brave. We bring the same kind of insight to the scriptures and say, what's the heart, the heart of this? Now, I know this is, I'm sorry if I'm beating this with a stick, but it's kind of important because especially now, um, in the Christian church, there's so many traditions which are so you know I mean I just dropped out of Fuller because I couldn't stand the and I thought Fuller would be different but this weird need to stretch the scriptures to fit every ethical problem yeah that's that's called eisegesis rather than exegesis where you come to the scriptures with an agenda and try to make the scriptures fit your agenda my goodness you know it's like I didn't realize that the reason this was how bad it got the reason the, the Israelites spent 40 years in the um, desert was to teach us that God doesn't want us to speed and break the speeding limit. And it was like, you know, that was where he found the reason that speeding is wrong in God's slowing down of the Israel of people so that it would be there for us. And I'm like, no! <laughs> you know, it's it's the fifth commandment. It just You apply the fifth commandment, you extend it and blah, 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 you know, but so finally, I just like, why? Why are you doing this? Having to find a Bible quote? Because then he would be, there, can you see the problem with it? He said, 
he actually said, there is no uh, bi biblical um, antecedent forbidding stem cell research of fetal stem cell research. Just couldn't find that one in there. And as I say, that's the problem with this as a way of living. Um, every age has to of, of, of find the eternal truth here and then apply it to the, the particular problems of its day. Um, One of the things I like about the way we do the lectionary, I talked a little bit about that, so that when, when in theory, when priests are preaching, they're presented with texts which you have to study and go through and find what the texts are saying, whereas the, I think most Protestant preaching that don't use the lectionary, it's you pick a topic, mm -hmm. then you go and you find the, the scriptures that apply to it, and then you know, get, so it can be all the way around. Mm -hmm. Just watch TBN. Yeah. Yeah. With a concord, uh, with a topic and a concordance, you've got, you know, you've got a two-hour sermon. So, so this thing of determining the literary form and then finding the the heart of the intention of the sacred writers, you know, what God wanted to communicate to the ages um, beyond um, the moment. Um, uh, that is basically that is Catholic biblical study and Catholic biblical reading, and then in context every line of scripture before you decide exactly what it prohibits or forbids has to be reconciled in, with everything else in scripture. One thing that I would say, uh, St. Augustine says that um, evil is when we take something complex and we make it simple just because it's easier for us to deal with it. And I see this... Um, wow. You know, I, I think it's a paraphrase from City of God, but there it is. I, I, I think... Um, the, a lot of the, say, the Protestant way of reading the Bible has to do with rendering it simpler because then we can fit it all in our heads. And this thing I'm telling you of we're reading scriptures in, uh, you know, searching for the eternal truth, trying to look past, um, you know, the, the stuff that would be accidentals and trying to get at the substance of it keeping in mind all of the scripture so every sentence has to be read in the context of every other one. That's tough. Yeah. You know, it's so much harder than just being able to pull out it's a line. you have to dedicate your life to. That's why it makes sense that yeah. the church should really be the should be there as you're, you know, that you're work, walking with the church, helping you, you know, right. helping you to, to do that. Because those of us who are living regular family lives and jobs and, you know, that kind of time. Yeah, you know, and uh, I mean, the greatest grace of my life was that I spent three hours a day reading the Bible for nine and a half years, basically to stay awake. But that gave me, you know, talk about having it in context. That was the best thing I got out of it was this kind of broad vision of 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 this thing so that, you know, it's like, oh, you know, there's a great line in here how every part, because God inspired it, every part of the New Testament is hidden in the Old and I get that because there would be so many times that I'd be reading the story of Joseph and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. Like, that's a setup for Jesus, you know, or the prophets or, you know, whatever. But even just in the histories, you know, in all the stories of the patriarchs and the prophets and the, and the kings, I would see, oh, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's the church, that's, you know, and, and it's true, it really is. But that, that's, um, you know, we have to dedicate our lives to it. It's a reason why the church makes a half an hour of devout reading of the scriptures and indulgence to action. You know, the idea of 
the church is saying, if you just read it a half an hour a day, it'll take years off your time in purgatory. And they're not like, it's not like a, you know, do this and we'll give you that. It's, it will. Can I, have, can I ask a quick question yeah, about that? Sure. Um, so, but what about like back in the day before they had, <coughs> and, I, and maybe I already kind of know the, mm-hmm. well, I might know the, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Back in the day, like before they had, you know, a copy of the Bible for everybody, right. um, and you know everybody got their scripture from church. Mm-hmm. Now, was it? It was not taught to obviously to read the Bible for half an hour every day, or right. whatever. It was mm-hmm. what was the theory then, and how come it's changed now? Well, I mean, I think um, you know we can make we can say a lot about what happened was the ch- in the church was a, a little bit of a reaction against um, Luther came along and said everybody should read the Bible and everybody can interpret the Bible according to their own needs because God speaks to everyone and everyone is a priest the priesthood is a joke it's really nothing everyone is a priest everyone can can be you know can understand the Bible so then I think the Catholic Church kind of was like no way yeah you know the people haven't been trained theologically they don't you know and so there was not an emphasis in the Catholic Church on the laity reading the scriptures because there was afraid there was a fear that they would um, just everybody decide what it meant on their own. However, today you have um, in this dogmatic constitution on the sacred liturgy um, on number 22, which is chapter 6, this is the current teaching of the church. Easy access to sacred scripture should be provided for all the Christian faithful. When was this done in Vatican II? Uh, 1965. Oh. So um, now that's not to say that before that it wasn't encouraged. I think um, it certainly was, but it didn't, I mean, this became then, you know, the emphatic teaching of the church that to encourage, um, and that whole section on the sacred scripture and the life of the church goes on. And not only are we supposed to, you know, read it, it's like we're supposed to read it in the, uh, in the you know in Latin and in Greek and um, and you know and study it and um, you know all of this that's what that whole section is and the priests and seminarians need to study and the bishops need to study and sacred theology rests on the scriptures and have to begin there so this line that we still hear thrown at the church that um, our people don't have access to the Bible is not the teaching of the church and has not been the teaching of the church. Um, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Now, it was never the teaching of the church that the lay people shouldn't read the Bible, but there was definitely a reactionary mode against the Protestant thing that was sweeping through, basically telling everybody, you can just read it and make up your own mind. Is that how you Yeah, that's true. It? And also, remember that this wasn't brand new when they wrote it, right. but it really kind of crystallized it and articulated and made official the trend that had really started in, in the 40s with mm-hmm. the Pontifical Biblical Commission and some things that were happening. Yeah. So this was really, really, the time was ripe and this was welcome. I remember in my home parish they used to have Bible sales Sunday where they'd bring out uh, like 10 different kinds of, they're probably all St. Joseph edition, but you could order family Bibles and all that stuff in sure. response to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I just wrote a movie about um, Jose Maria Scriba, I mentioned it before, but you have him in 1930 telling his guys and the women he was teaching and working with his lay people you need to be meditating on the scriptures half an hour a day okay. you know that's 1928 you know so um, so it would it had already uh, become um, the trend and I think the Vatican II 
basically said, you know, we've had this rap thrown at us that we don't want the lay people reading the Bible. We're going to definitively teach dogmatically that easy access to the sacred scripture should be provided for all the Christian faithful. So when, okay, so in, I'm sure in, like, mm-hmm. in response, I know before, like, most people probably couldn't really read either. Right, there was another um, problem, yeah. But, um, so was it, like, in response to the whole thing where people started reading the Bible and reading bad translations and mm-hmm. stuff like that, like, did the Catholic Church finally decide, okay, we need to translate the Bible, and do that, or what we, happened? The Catholic Church was one, I mean, we translated into the vernacular shortly after the Gutenberg Press. Okay. I mean, it, they, but not into every language. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that that part is. Yeah. I mean, people weren't generally literate until 19 around some around when the First World War. That's, oh really? Yeah. Sure. Our brothers in our community didn't read the Bible because they couldn't read. Yeah. They did the rosary for their prayers. They didn't do the breviary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have in. Um, you know, a, a, you know Emily Dickinson um, thing that's very charming uh, that I wrote again in my movie. But they used to have the ritual of the father of the family reading the Bible um, to um, the family, but it would be the servants and um, like the whole group would meet and they would read the scriptures on certain nights. And it was because um, the servants didn't read. And the thing that was cool was that all the servants in their family were Irish Catholics, um, but this was a, a congregational family. But um, so here you have the Catholic servants from Ireland getting the scriptures from their congregational family, but they didn't read. So uh, you know they they said their rosary and they um, um, they would go to church. But that if it wasn't for the priest preaching, um, they wouldn't have had access to the scriptures. And even the idea that it's one book, like when they made the first Bible, they didn't bind it like this. It would have been more like a library in in scrolls. And and old Trappist told me that they used to get, the Trappist monks used to get one book of the Bible during Advent, and that was their book of the Bible for the year. So you Mm. you always prayed you got Isaiah and not like... (laughs) (laughs) can you say quickly the mm-hmm. like the, uh, the the apocrypha thing and like what what sure. was what was so what was solidified in, in 383 and mm-hmm. i mean it, it's more interesting to see in the light of the mirror and the tradition the live tradition and going through mm-hmm. that language helped me because i've heard some of there, okay. Why they um, added? We call it what we call what 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 Protestants will call apocrypha. We will call Deuter- mostly deuterocanonical. Um, there are some works that we will also call apocryphal. Um, the difference is that um, when Luther decided which books were in the Bible, he went back to um, to find the Bible the, the Bible that were in the original languages in which they were written according to his understanding as near as he could and he was a you know a scriptural scholar I don't know how good he was um, but uh, the fact is he was so there were some Bible books that were no longer available in their original languages and he threw those out Maccabees, Judith um, James Wisdom yeah Tobit Mm -hmm. Um, now when the, when the church had canonized um, the scriptures, um, they 
they were fine with some of these that were not available in the original languages because they had become so much a part of the life of the church. And again, the church brooded over it, prayed and decided that these were inspired texts. So um, it's kind of... Uh, now, we called those that were no longer available in the original language deuterocanonical. If they made that statement at three, in 383. 383, section. yeah, around there when it was canonized. I believe it was 380. Is it 380? Right, so they said, these are the canonized, these are inspired. Yeah, these all these are inspired. Now, the fact that we don't have them still in their original languages, and actually, there were a couple that at that point, they did have them, but Luther, by the time Luther did his thing in 1517, they were no longer available. So... Um, and I think one of those was Maccabees. Some of these they found then in the Dead Sea when they found it's the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. so they were, the right. Catholic canon was validated by the Dead Sea Scrolls. They right. found the original? Yes, yeah. so yeah. when the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were translated, they... they found like Maccabees and the original. They had some of the originals, I don't know which ones, but if the Lutherans were honest and all the traditions had come down, they would have said, oh, Luther didn't couldn't find these, so therefore... We found them now, and these Dead Sea Scrolls have been preserved for 3,000 years or whatever, so we should put them back in the canon, but, you know, they didn't. So that's basically where we get the distinction. Now, there are some that we both consider apocryphal, like the Gospel of Thomas, um, the, the Gospel of, of Peter, the Book of Enoch, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, you know, these are, um, you know, not... Um, there, there's In the Oxford Bible, they have the dragon... Oh, Bell and the Dragon. Bell and the Dragon. You know, and they, I can never figure out why they put that one in there. You know, <laughs> they must have a reason. They're really smart. <laughs> but um, anyway, so um, so when we talk about apocrypha, we mean those books that are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, and then the ones that were in dispute because of Luther's not being able to find them, we you know we we have referred to as deuterocanonical. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Did I did I do that okay? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Um, okay, um, just want to, uh, we're not going to get to Matthew, but let's just wrap up here, uh, uh, Dave Verbum. Um, I'm going to point out a couple um, things. Chapter 4, uh, this one on the Old Testament. And I, I just, I think this is the heart of you know, answering that problem of what do you do with Joshua having to slay the Canaanites and being, you know, that God told them to do that, whatever. Getting the heart of the meaning, this is number 1 under 15, says... These same books, so what do we really get from the Old Testament? Hmm? They give expression to a lively sense of God. They contain a store of sublime teachings about God. Wait, where is it? This is um, number 15 under chapter 4 on the Old Testament. So this is basically what, when we read the Old Testament, rather than looking for you know, how we should dress or what we should eat, or, yeah. you know, how we should treat women who are pregnant, you know, or whatever. What we should get from them is a lively sense of God, a store of sublime teachings about God, sound wisdom about human life, a wonderful treasury of prayers, um, and then the mystery of our salvation present in a hidden way. So Christians should receive them with reverence because all of those things are absolutely key to us living a holy life. But that is basically what the Old Testament should be conveying to us. More than, you know, as I said, the literalist is, ah, well, God told Isaiah, 
um, when you see the fig tree, you must walk ten paces um, around it. You know, it's like, no, um, you know, the, the point of that was obey God or whatever, you know, okay? And the, the big modern debate, if you will, is evolution. It's like, did Genesis mean to even talk about that? No, it's not a science book. Yeah, it's not a science book. It's, it's that God was the author of life and that God created us male and female and, it, and blew his divine life into us. That's the point. So, did he do it? Did a day last a thousand years or a million years? You know, was it a, is it a real time clock? No, it's not a science book. Yeah. So we don't, we, we don't believe, I mean, do we believe there was an Adam and an Eve? We do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. We, we do. They, and in did fact, they, did the whole human race come from them? Yes. yes. Um, we believe, uh, we, we do believe that there were two parent, original parents. Because uh, and this disputes. What's the document? Um, uh, what is the document? Uh, gen, gen, gener, gener, uh, Generis. Humanis. Humanis. Generis. Yeah. Humanis Generis deals with um, this question of could we believe that it was like a community that all sinned? You know, was it like a village? <laughs> um, was it like all the apes kind of became human and then they sinned? You know, something like that. Um, and and it's rejected that that um, because. The idea of two first parents is so pivotal to the entire story of our salvation, um, the new Adam and the new Eve. Um, we, that is not part of the thing. But, but the rest of the creation story is, is meant to be um, to give a sense of um, the sovereignty of God, the creator, his special relationship with us. Um, and then, But still, some fabulous stuff. I mean, the sins in Genesis of Adam and Eve are still the sins that, that you know, sink us. Mm-hmm. The idea of a life without limits. And then the two things, you know, the, he will, um, your desire will be for your husband and he will lord it over you. I mean, those two things define the sinful fallen state of us that we are always, you know, women are always trying to um, get the male gaze and men are always in their sinful state dominating women and uh, there it is it goes back to Genesis so okay um, uh, but um, that's that section of the Old Testament basically says why you know we read it because it's one you could say why do we need the Old Testament we got the New Testament but um, the church is very clear that the Old Testament um, is is efficacious for us okay um, last chapter 5 on the New Testament the important part here is this whole thing on the historicity of the Gospels now as I told you uh, we read a lot of the Bible of, of trying to figure out is this a historical book is it you know um, is this something that really happened whatever now the one part of the Bible for sure that the church wants to be very clear is, histori- is history is the Gospels uh, this is number 9 and this 19, excuse me, number 19 under chapter 5. So this is another one of those pretty ambiguous assertions. Holy Mother Church has firmly and with absolute constancy held and continues to hold that the four Gospels just named, whose historical character the Church unhesitatingly asserts, faithfully hand on what Jesus Christ, while living among men, really did and taught for their eternal salvation. Okay? So, um, 
when it says Jesus walked on water, Jesus walked on water. When it says Jesus fed a multitude, Jesus fed a multitude. When it says Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, I don't know that they could be stronger. And it's important because we have Christ saying, believe because of the things I say or else because of the things I do. Now, if we can't trust the the record of the things he said, then we can't really be expected to believe. And if we can't then trust the things he did, then we can't really be expected to believe. So, Um, we agree literally. The the Gospels are are historical, yes. But I, I They're mean, not literal. That's a very good distinction. Yeah, this is different. yeah literalism is tr- finding a line and then building your religion around that line. You know, like um, if you um, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. <laughs> oh, I looked at pornography <laughs> on the internet. I could rip out my eye. See, that's literalism. It's like that line has to be read in the context of the entire scriptures. You know, in in the light of the fifth commandment, which is thou shall not kill. Mm-hmm. But historically, right? Christ said that. But Christ did say that, yeah. John? Um, I'm struggling with all the biblical teaching I've learned. Like, uh, for instance, at the end of John, it's like, uh, you know, a sponge was put on a sprig of hyssop Mm -hmm. and put over Jesus. Well, hyssop was a plant, and a sprig is like a little branch, and a sponge Mm -hmm. back then is two pounds, and when it's wet, it's Mm -hmm. ten pounds. So you cannot put it up to Jesus. You would have to get on top of a ladder and hang it over Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, the guy who taught me, you know, with the Greek philosophy, is like John is the you know what is John doing here? He's doing this really cool alarmo to the reader, being like, look, he's the Lamb, he's the Lamb, because this is impossible. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's it's very. He's saying John is employing comedy, actually, that like, you know, the spear is the right is the right way to put it up to him, and it, it's not. He's like, it didn't happen. That the hyssop, not to be like this, like guy who's like, look what didn't happen, sure. even though right. the couple says right. he's right. saying, right. look at how he's mm-hmm. a law. He's a Jewish people. He's the lamb. Right. Yeah. Well, so I mean, John's gospel more than the other three because it was written late, the latest, and it didn't need to, in one sense, redo what the others had done. So the synoptics were there to record everything Jesus did and said. Then John comes along and he doesn't need to rewrite what they've got. They've got that. So yeah. he's wanting the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to to write a meditation on the word. And so he's already um, he's already going for a little more lyrical meaning than the others. And yet, having said that, um, he's 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 emphasizing certain things that Jesus said and did in a different way. Jesus said and did them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to see where you draw the line and mm-hmm. like with with some of the things that. I mean, what would you say about that hyssop thing, the sponge thing? I don't well, know. I mean, about there is the a sponge. theological purpose behind it, and yeah, I think that's the, why the point I would be it's, it's, it's the synoptics that already established what Jesus did. Yeah, that wasn't in dispute. It wasn't a question. Mm-hmm. You know, John wants to explore the theological meaning of of Christ, and he's using hyssop to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hang-up we have as moderns is we tend to demand that something that's going to be historical and true in our eyes has to be like following somebody around with a video camera. Right, and that's yeah. not the only sense of truth that there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, so I think right away to say that 
um, the, you know, read, read this um, literary forms thing. Keep that in mind and say, you know, in the New Testament, John is the, the closest thing to, um, he's doing a little more lyrical uh, than the others are because, because poetry is required to bring out the truths that he's wanting. So, so you have the whole, like the opening, you know, of his gospel. It's not trying to give us the details of Jesus' birth. It's, you know, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word, you know, it's a much more poetic, lyrical um, thing that he's going through. Here's for. a more direct one, then. Like right. when, I mean, I have a book called The Four, uh, Synopsis of the Four Gospels, and it lays out the different things, right. and it's like, obviously, it looks like Luke's, you know, mm-hmm. pick up your crew. In Mark, it says, come after me, pick up this cross and follow me. And, mm-hmm. and Luke, he adds a daily. Mm-hmm. Pick up this cross and follow me daily, mm-hmm. and I mean that's the only one off the top of my head. But I'm mm-hmm. sure if I go through and it's not going to match up what he said mm-hmm. in each, and it's either then the explanation is well Mark just didn't mention that word, mm-hmm. and now you know the historical understanding is that Mark was the original, and then there was the Q source, and right. then they were drawing from that, and they were talking to that town, so they did it that way, and that's why when you when this says I mean, I see the assertion that it is what he said. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's why we have three of them. Because the, the church... Is it, it is what he said in the sense that... We need the three to get the, the whole... To get at what to he get it all. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. He might have said it different, on different occasions, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Different crowds for different purposes. Yeah. And the evangelist recorded it for different crowds and different purposes. Mm-hmm. And, and, is um, it bad to do... Th- like, I've... Mm-hmm. I've found that to be the key to it is mm-hmm. to look it through the author's thing though and not mm-hmm. go that sounds like to be honest that well maybe he said it three times mm-hmm. you know to the farming community mm-hmm. then to the city community and that and they're just recording three different right. times or maybe I'm more, more comfortable with the gospel writer just mm-hmm. being like he said this but mm-hmm. but do you, yeah. think, do you think he only gave each each thing once yeah I mean do think, think about that, that? he just basically it was like a stump years. speech we talked for three mm-hmm. years, and you can read the Gospel of Mark in an hour. Jesus went to all the different towns, and every time he went to the different town, he didn't give new information. He basically yeah. started again. And so, yeah, they heard his stump speech over three years, probably a <laughs> hundred times, maybe yeah. more. And so that's what—that's one of the reasons that it was an oral tradition. Right. They had heard it so many times. Okay. You know, the stump speech. Jesus would start over again in every town. And then he sends them out, and they go and repeat basically the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's actually not too far fetched to say that Jesus yeah, said it three times. Okay. It'd be um, kind of like you know in Act One we both heard Ron Austin steal. You probably took notes. I took notes. We have different things in our notes. Right. And but well, what it is is, is, is I don't I don't I don't come from an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. That's that's the crux of right. it. Is that yeah. You have uh-huh. to get into what an oral tradition is. Right. It's repetition. At yeah. Point. Well, I I just love the idea of um. Not save. Yeah. It's not like he would arrive in a new town and say, now you need to get the notes because I'm on a I'm on a a, a tour here <laughs> and in, <laughs> in Samaria <laughs> we're talking <laughs> about freedom. You Here's know. My website. In, yeah. Right. right. In Capernaum <laughs> we covered sin. <laughs> You know, no, it's like he basically started over and then, um, you know, for sure the apostles at night and whenever in between on the road would get a little bit more. But he had a stump speech and the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, the content of it, I think, primarily. So, um, yeah, because otherwise they couldn't have gotten away with it. If any of them had written something that wasn't part of the stump speech, 
the others would have said, wait a minute, he never said that. <laughs> you know, and that's why I think part of the apocryphal gospels didn't make it. Mm-hmm. They yeah. stuff right. that just that only they recorded, mm-hmm. and everybody said, oh, you know, that wasn't him. Yeah, yeah. None of the, no, none of us heard him say that. You know, or only one of us heard it. It's like, no, no, he told me that at night. It's like, you know what? <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> We're going with what he said to all of us because, you know. So, um, yeah, I think um, I think the idea that the good news was basically proclaimed over and over and over um, means is part of that. So I think that's why we have the three synoptics. They all are shedding light on the same story, but right. they're not contradicting each other. This is going to bug me. I'm going to come back to this. Because like he, yeah. It's like mm-hmm. he says three freaking different things on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. It's, it's mm-hmm. you know, Psalm 22 is, you know, mm-hmm. it, it then like, it's finished. And this is, this is what would and, be a uh, problem. See, that's just completing the picture. This would be a problem. If one of the things he said on the cross was, damn them to hell, Father. If, it's, yeah. if he had that, would be not in the spirit of the gospel. It seems, yeah. though, that Mark, his cry to he- God that, why have you forsaken me, is very different yeah. than... Uh-huh. Well, it's in the sense that it's um, using the words of the prophet to say, I am assuming myself, I am, you know, this is me, I am the suffering servant. Yeah. And I am taking, um, that's who I am, and that's why they, you know, they, those around knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like, good God, even now still playing this game yeah yeah so um but yeah i think um i think the idea of the three synoptics is is because they all together give the complete picture Uh, but nothing out the point is there's nothing in them that would be inconsistent with the others Mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah that's true um okay so um but the, the the main point is that we hand on to every generation the things that jesus said and the things that he did and we believe that those are, in, you know, in, as recorded in the um, in the Gospels. That is, there is, the, we 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 do believe that there was historicity there. And um, and I love the point here in that same paragraph in 19. Um, this they did with that clear understanding which they enjoyed after they had been instructed by the glorious events of Christ's life in the light of the Spirit. So, in other words, they wrote the Scriptures after Pentecost when their minds had been enlightened by the Spirit. And then you have that period of that weird apostolic period where everything is jump-started. The Christian movement is jump-started and they get all these special things. You know, they can drink deadly poisons and speak every language and get by location. And, you know, like they're doing these things because it's the first surge of the Christian movement. And um, and you know uh, so and in that surge they write these scriptures so they had extra clear recollection extra clear um, ability to not let their own agendas override you know things like that okay uh, we gotta go um, basically uh, yeah we already covered the one about um, sacred scripture in the life of the church which is the whole thing is leading up to. So hopefully that gives you some quick intro into Catholic, the Catholic sense of the scriptures and sacred traditions. Um, you know, there's much, much, much more that you can read about these things. Um, and I would particularly point you to writings of the Church Fathers on tradition, if that interests you. It's fabulous stuff where um, the Church Fathers in the first eight centuries are basically saying, um, you know, talking about why we're special because we have the sacred tradition along with the scriptures.
um, and it's very cool.